WBZ original. Yeah, it's like us, you know. It's like, it's like peeling an onion. Um, <laughs> the layers. What's the Fascination. <laughs> what is it, the scent? Oh, God, just molten hot lava. <laughs> Uh, so here we are, just the two of us, Liam and I, beginning episode three of season four of Alston's number one podcast. I'm so proud that we maintained that oh, record. Forget about it. We're we, ahead of everyone in the really, close. There really is no one else on the list. Yeah, we put so, it in quotation to be marks. Considered. Uh, we should um, say so welcome in. you're here. You were yes. about to interview a Nobel uh, laureate. I am here. Can you imagine? This is the thing about working in Boston. One day you're talking to an astronaut, another day some amazing person in the news. Today I get to talk to someone who just won the Nobel Prize in medicine. And he's amazing in his cancer research. Dr. William Kaler. So the point of this is to say that you will be leaving moments. So I have to jump out of the studio in a few moments. And David Wade... Is supposed to already be in the studio, but he's running a few minutes late. Mm -hmm. So he's going to come in. It's going to be like a tag team. I'm going to pass the baton. Yeah. No, you could actually jump from a top rung, tag him in, (laughs) and then then run out. That would be that would preferable. be spectacular. That would be. I mean, I know we're not on video right now. They would ask uh, us to release video. I will. Of that. I will play by play. It. You've never seen me at CrossFit. You don't know what <laughs> oh, I can gosh. do. You know what I like you about you? You don't talk to me all the time about your CrossFit. No, I don't. Most because, CrossFit people are obnoxious yeah, it about it. Can have a cultish quality. I did this today at uh, CrossFit. Right. So I make a concerted effort not. You almost never to list I, I my bring it up wad with you. With you. Right. Your bod? Did you wad, say your bod? Oh, the bod. workout of the day. Bod. Liam, that's what we call it. <laughs> I thought you said your bod. No, 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 that no, no. a different conversation. Well, that's a whole other level. Let's jump in here now. But anyway, uh... so back to uh, when David comes in, you will be amazed by my ability to leap across the podcast desk yes. here okay. and pass it off to him. Okay. So, but what we're going to talk about uh, this week is um, an interview that I did yesterday with Margaret Brennan, the host moderator of Face the Nation on CBS News. Really fascinating person who is an expert in foreign policy. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get into that. She's fantastic. We also had a conversation with Meredith Goldstein. One the of our love, faves. One of our faves, the Love Letters columnist at the Boston Globe. She herself has a podcast. Season three of Love Letters is out. And it's all about how to know when someone is the one or when they're not the one. She asked some of these mm. big questions during this season, and we talked with her about that. And then, after I have to scoot to go talk to a Nobel Prize winner, you and David Wade are going to uh, talk about a really interesting quiz that the Boston Archives, the City of Boston Archives, tweeted out. Yeah. I won't ruin it, mm-hmm. but it's probably better for just the two of you to have this face-off. Yeah. You're going to be asking David but, this Boston uh, trivia. By the way, ultimate power move from you just now. What was that? You guys are going to talk about this, you know, funny little mm, quiz. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go interview a Nobel Prize. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you go, that was my gonna... <laughs> best humble brag of all time. <laughs> that was good. I'm sorry. I'm just going to go do this hey, little thing. Hey, while you guys do this silly little, you know, thing, um, I'm going to be talking with Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> I did not mean it that way. I'm so misunderstood. Margaret Brennan, the moderator and host of Face the Nation on CBS News, was in our WBZ studios this week because she was given the New Englander of the Year Award by the New England Council. And so while she was in Boston, she came by. We had a really interesting conversation in the newsroom with the whole staff. And then I had the opportunity to bring her here to the podcast studio. And what was great about it was I had the chance to go back and talk to her about her childhood growing up in Connecticut, uh, what sparked her interest 
interest in foreign policy and becoming a journalist, uh, how going to an all-girls high school impacted her, her education, her view of the world and the way she approaches things, and her current role as we head into impeachment and, of course, election 2020. So, Margaret, congratulations on your award you're receiving tonight, New Englander of the Year from the New England Council. (laughs) Must feel like an enormous honor for a girl from Connecticut. (laughs) It's it's really fun, and it's really, um, it is a great honor because there have been so many distinguished recipients in the past. Um, Mm -hmm. It's also nice to be able to get back up here at the most beautiful time of the year to be in New England. October is the best. It is. Just a sunny fall day um, in New England is wonderful. I was looking at the leaves and thinking of that. Um, Mm -hmm. But I live, you know, in in D.C., which, as many like to remind me, is a swamp. (laughs) It's good to get out of the swamp every once in a while. It is. But let me bring you back um, because people love to hear about your family of origin and so you grew up in Connecticut. What did your mom and dad do? Uh, I grew up in Connecticut, mm-hmm. uh, born and raised there. My um, mom is an artist, and she was teaching um, mm. while I was, you know, when I was a small child, she was curator of an art museum, and then mm. to help take care of us, uh, went part-time. And then my father uh, has worked on Wall Street for most of my life. Mm. So we were a commuter family. He commuted sure. into Manhattan from where we grew up every single day. And uh, I thank him for that. I cannot imagine that. But they gave us a wonderful life because of um, all that they sacrificed. And I went to school in Greenwich, mm-hmm. Connecticut. Yeah, so you, you went to Convent of the Sacred Heart mm-hmm. in Greenwich, Connecticut. There is a Sacred Heart school here in the Boston area, Newton Country Day School of the Sacred Heart. They're all interconnected. And that's one thing that I always think is interesting I also attended an all-girls high school mm-hmm. and had my daughters do the same. And I do think it is fascinating when you talk to many, many women leaders, CEOs, uh, high achievers, they will tell you that they went to a girls' school. Looking back, what do you think that did for you? I think it's a really interesting conversation. My mm-hmm. mom went to an all-girls college, mm-hmm. which I think was more common um, when she was growing up. but she gave us all the options, but I looked at two all-girls schools. Sacred Heart just absolutely was the right community for me. Mm-hmm. But I do think that being in an environment at such a sensitive you know, part of your life when you're really transforming mm-hmm. into an adult, having some of those distractions, the noises, the pressures minimized to the degree you can minimize anything at that point mm-hmm. – is a virtue. And then putting you in a community where they are, you know, and I don't mean to sound like uh, I'm a commercial, but are focusing on those, you know, sort of social values Mm -hmm. is hugely important. But it gives you more confidence, too. I didn't think twice about raising my hand when I went to a massive school like UVA. So many uh, single gender high schools will tell you the same. The other thing, too, didn't you think, I think it has an enormous impact on girls between 14 and 17, yeah. which are really formative years, that every leadership position in the school is held by a girl. Right. So it never would occur to you that they couldn't do that. Right. It was competitive and it was focused on what you should be focused on when you're at school. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But I think And I have, you know, it was a Catholic all-girls school, so I I think as well of the, you know, sisters and the nuns who informed me and this one just devastating comment of if you don't have the conviction of your own opinion, then why are you raising your hand? Which was a way of saying, stop telling me that I could be wrong. 
but mm. I don't know, this might not be right, but the disclaimers that young girls and often women attach to their statements to soften how they land. It's true. To distance that, to not own it. And just even those little behavioral things, those behavioral tics, mm. um, having them highlighted, I, I, th- I just think it was a really interesting yeah. Thing I and noticed. You better have some evidence to back up what it is you're going to say. Yes. In a classroom. Yes. I often find this uh, doing MOS as we so often do at the local the news man level. On the street. Mm-hmm. Men love to come up and give you their opinion, <laughs> and women will always put up their hand and say, "I don't, I don't want to be on camera. I don't mm-hmm. look good," and they don't want to tell you what they think because they're worried about how they will appear, which always makes me tremendously sad. So I always try to stop them and say, no, no, we, you know, we want to know what you have to say. Right. Um, and so when did your real interest in foreign policy, foreign affairs, uh, when was that uh, developed? Was your home kind of a newsy household? You know, your dad worked on Wall Street. He was right. obviously involved in finance. Were they people that talked about current events in the news at the dinner table? Always. And mm. my mom always was watching the news, and we always had the papers, and I loved reading them mm. and um, trying to understand what things were about. Mm. Um, and I remember actually asking her about what was on the news. And, right. you know, I studied uh, the Middle East in particular as a f- area of focus within foreign affairs. and. Mm. All of my childhood, there was something in the news about a conflict somewhere, often in the Middle East. So it was kind of like this natural thing where I would start asking questions while I was young, and it ended up becoming this fascination. And all in a pre-9-11 world, as you point out. So a very different frame of reference to study the Middle East. It it was, and it was... um, it's a great uh, grounding for me and background to have. it, It is so... Just thinking of the classes I took and the buildings I took them in, I mean, mm. Middle East and foreign affairs, that part of the foreign affairs uh, program was in the basement of the mm. main building. And you just saw that the academic focus really hadn't caught up with where current affairs were. Right. Um, and then after 9-11, all of a sudden, there was all this money being poured into learning Arabic and learning Persian and learning sure. Urdu and learning all these languages and a hunger for expertise. Yeah. Um, and it, I think of that often that, you know, people don't necessarily know where they should be looking. Did you study Arabic? You minored in Arabic. Did I you study it. it right from the beginning? I did. I did. And did you feel strong enough to, when you, by the time you studied in Jordan, your junior year, were you fluent enough to feel comfortable? Did you live with a host family? Um, I did a program um, through uh, Yarmouk University, mm. and so it was. Uh, there were classes, and I had classmates who lived with me. Mm. So all the girls lived in one dorm, and all the guys lived in a, another dorm. And uh, we had an amazing experience just traveling. Um, but there is nothing more humbling than trying and struggling to communicate and mm. express yourself. And it is a totally different experience between what you learn in the classroom and what you actually have to use on the streets. Um, you know, it's sort of if you were studying classical Shakespearean English and then right. got thrown on the street in New York, it's kind of that difference with Arabic that you, there's a formal and then there's a everyday version. Mm. So it was tough, but it was great. And it made me really, really appreciate people who come to this country trying to learn English. Oh, don't you always think when I encounter someone, especially who's working in a job, I have such admiration for people that can come here uh, from another country and work mm-hmm. in, a, in a second language. Um, to fast forward just a little bit, you did use your um, 
you know, your knowledge of business uh, at first. You worked at CNBC, uh, working for Louis Reichhauser and all, the, you know, all those different shows as a producer and a booker. And then once you went to CBS News with all of that experience mm-hmm. and you started covering the White House, covering politics, did you, by then, during the Obama administration, do you think that a shift to more understanding of the Middle East had happened enough by then for Americans? Well, you know, just to back up, it's interesting because I went to cover business news um, at CNBC and at Bloomberg, mm-hmm. and I I didn't have much background other than, you know, my dad worked sure. on Wall Street. Right. Um, but I learned on the job as much as I possibly could, and I was there through the crises, mm-hmm. um, multiple crises, and that was an education in just sort of seeing as well, no matter what part of the world you're looking at, it's always the basics. It's always the kitchen table issues that people vote on, they feel good or bad on, they go to the streets to protest about ultimately. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was finding those common threads through all those stories, um, even just leading up into the like European debt crisis, the connections to the political change that we're in now in, in Europe. Um, and elsewhere. It's that we section off these storylines and segments and beats, and they're all very interwoven. So I felt like that was a cumulative education for me. Um, I think going into covering politics and covering Washington with the Obama administration, I went into the State Department to cover first Hillary Clinton, then John Kerry. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to the White House with Obama. And then uh, from day one of President Trump's uh, inauguration, I was covering him. And it's um, been good to have those that foundational background because it is complicated. People mm. do get overwhelmed, whether it's the Middle East or it's, you know, conflicts around the world. Um, but understanding it's always going to come down to those fundamentals yeah. that people get confused by which group is doing which and where and what border. And, OK, what is it fundamentally about? Mm-hmm. Um, has always been kind of the analytic tools that I've used. Um, But right now, which is kind of a different question, but I I do see um, in our own politics or when you're talking about Europe, this this focus on the person, the personality, whether it's Boris Johnson Mm -hmm. or it's Donald Trump. But if you if you open the lens a little further, we are going through tremendous change yeah. socially and economically, yeah. and, and people are grappling with that, and that is adding up into our politics. Don't you, I've thought since the election day, it's almost as if 2016 really was the end of the 20th century. That it took us a few years where those politics bled into this century, and then something really came to an end. There, were, there was such a big switch. You you couldn't get a more sort of traditional um, respect for uh, foreign po- the way we approach foreign policy and the very measured approach that reflected President Obama's personality, right? And now that we are in this Trump era where Americans who voted for him clearly wanted to see something very different, a non-politician to take over. Um, because all of your experience had been with such traditional administrations, yeah. has it been a little bit um, disorienting to kind of have to change the way you approach covering President Trump? Well, I think President Trump has made a virtue and run on this idea of being a disruptor. And mm. people like that idea, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone runs as a disruptor. It's right. just the degree to I'm going to do it. Differently. I'm going to be the one that fixes the swamp right. and drains it. Um, but what people have, I think, realized that 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 may work as a slogan and that may work as an end goal to change but it's the 
it doesn't sound sexy, but it's the, it's the process, it's the planning, it's the strategy, it's the guts of those institutions that uh, help you then make the change. And mm-hmm. sometimes those things are at odds when it's a spontaneous decision. Right. You can't get the whole tanker to shift and move in the direction to help you achieve your goal when you're right. changing and shifting all the time. Um, and so it's disrupted a lot of uh, the surface, but a lot of the actual um, institutions, if you want and need them to change, you got to involve them in that process. Mm. And so that's where you have, I think, some of that continued frustration that we see in polling that Washington actually hasn't changed that much. It's right. not like Congress is now passing tons of legislation right. because they have a disruptor in the Oval Office. If anything, there was that hope that uh, the president would reach across the aisle, be able to broker deals and do things that only he uniquely could do. Um, And that actually hasn't paid off on those Mm -hmm. big issues that people do vote on, like health care. And it's that sort of clash uh, of not being able to take the institution with you to achieve the goal that I think has frustrated uh, some of those bigger picture things. As you head into covering impeachment for Face the Nation... Um, you had set out in the newsroom a few moments ago, you try to avoid just getting a Democrat, getting a Republican, and yes. having both sides talk. How do you approach covering impeachment when you know half the country voted for and supports the president and thinks that this is unjust, and the other half who are hoping this will mean his removal from office? Mm-hmm. You know, How do you make sure you're talking to everybody? It's It's really messy, and I think we just have to stay focused on the fact patterns that develop and explain them to the audience. It's not a popularity contest. Unfortunately, that may be how it's voted. Mm-hmm. That was a strategy in the Clinton administration for him to survive impeachment, um, to make the public and the elected representatives just digest it on a purely partisan way mm-hmm. um, and just say they're out to get me based on my party. But with this instance, what has happened just even in the past week with the chief of staff going to television cameras and saying something on camera that contradicted what the White House had right. been saying to that point, people may be confused on the particulars, but they get what they heard and they may believe what they hear. And so as this starts to transition into public view, right now the hearings are behind are hearings, the depositions mm-hmm. behind closed doors. And when we start having hearings in an open session, people may start to think a little differently and perhaps focus on the conduct and the behavior and not just the politics. But it is so hard because, as many know, from day one with these 2018 congressional races, there were people who were elected Mm -hmm. on a promise of, I will go to impeach the president. And so that doesn't that doesn't mesh well with right. the uh, American tradition of, you know, uh, guilty until proven mm-hmm. innocent. Of course, this isn't criminal. This is political. Right. But um, right. High crimes and misdemeanors. Right. It's exactly what a majority of Congress says it does. Right. But it, it hurts people's ability to hear the substance of what you're saying when they think it is just being said for a political end. Right. Your little boy is 13 months old. He is. And you famously announced that you're expecting on Stephen Colbert's show. Oh, I did. Yeah. And how <laughs> has it changed the way you approach your job being a mother? Um, I think it continues to change Mm -hmm. uh, as I continue to adapt to him and his growing needs. Mm -hmm. Um, But it it absolutely has opened my eyes to so much in terms of appreciating 
how families juggle and particularly women. Um, the fortune that I have that I had the ability to take paid time off. You know, I live in Washington. I have friends who work for the federal government and they don't get paid mm-hmm. um, when they're off to have a child. Um, it's still amazing that we consider it in some way a disability to have a child rather than um, a contribution to our society. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's so much interesting talk that could be had around building the architecture to support our society more that women are in the workplace in the way that we are but you know just in immediate sense I don't think and just being brutally honest that that anyone ever feels like they have a balance when they're Mm -hmm. a mom yeah it's constantly constantly um a juggle that's great well Margaret Brennan we will be looking for you on face the nation throughout this exciting year oh thanks for being here and coming in to talk with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, let's look at it. Put it online. Oh, yeah, hold on. We're all Put it online. How do you know when it's true love? Boston Globe advice columnist Meredith Goldstein joins us now. Season three of the Love Letters podcast is about to drop. In fact, drops today. Always good to see you. Thanks nice for coming back on. It's always nice to have you in. Okay, so in the past uh, few seasons of the Love Letters podcast, you covered breakups and then how to meet people, how to find new relationships. So what are we covering this season? Yeah, so we'd like to do one question for an entire season. So we got really into breakups. Then we got really into how people meet. And now the question is, how do you know? Mm. And that question has many forms and many answers, right? So how do you know someone is the one, if you believe in the one? Um, how do you know it's time to leave? Uh, how do you know you want to convert for someone? Mm. So all these very big questions and, and a few um, maybe uh, less important questions like how do you know you're ready to get a tattoo with someone's <laughs> name on it? I don't know if that is less important. That's that's pretty important. It's pretty, well, it's pretty por- permanent. And in fact, <laughs> most of the tattoo artists we've talked to say that's a real good way to end a relationship, that most of the people they know who get tattoos of a name of a significant other have broken up. Do you think that's because the people who agree to get that tattoo or just are more likely to be in a Oh, no. I think often the people are getting the tattoo to commit to a relationship that isn't all the way there. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> and in fact... That's one way to find out. Well, yep. yes. I have something I have to tell you. Yeah, exactly. That, that, right. is, that would be bad. If you get a tattoo and your partner is horrified by the fact that their name is... is on your person, you might have made a mistake. <laughs> so anyway, it's a whole many ways to interpret the question, and we're learning a lot. How do you know it's the one, if you believe in the one necessarily? If you believe in the one, question, yeah. and I think most of the people we've talked to know that there might be many ones, right? Sure. It's just a question of who you meet. For our first episode, which did launch today, one of the ways that a musician, a touring musician, who never settled down, did decide to be with someone forever is because he said his partner felt like home. Mm -hmm. And for a touring musician, the idea that home was wherever she was, that was what was important to him. Mm -hmm. So everyone seems to have their own definition, but I will say that when people listen, they say, oh, this applies to me, or this is how I would know. So, you know, we don't expect to give one answer for everyone, but we're getting a lot of good ones. It is such an individual thing. Finances, that that can be such a problematic thing in a relationship. How do you know when it's time to share finances? I know some married couples who don't share finances. Well, I was just going to say, for a lot of people, the, the answer is don't. <laughs> don't share <laughs> At finances. all, ever. Yes. And in fact, <laughs> I wind up getting my sister on that episode of the podcast who admits that her husband may not know what she spends. Really? In some ways. Because they, they have separate finances. They have separate accounts and then one shared account. So lots of honest conversations are required before do you, that happens. Do you think that, I mean, that, is that an individual thing too? Or do you think people should? Because it, it says something about the relationship. It says something about 
permanence. You are committing to that person for life. My wife and I, I'll say, we, we do share finances. And it's partly because we trust each other to be responsible. And we're saying, look, it's for life. It's forever. And for many people, it's about what age they got together. You know, if they already had a certain amount of assets before a, a coupling, um, it can make sense to keep things separate. But I think for the most part, it's about like planning for the future. Are you planning together, whether that's separately with one shared account or, mm. or not? On the other side of this, you tackle how you know when it's time to leave someone, not that they are the one, that they aren't the one. Uh, what did you find on that side of it? Well, I, th- you know, I think one of our more popular episodes this season will be about a woman who cancels a wedding. And I think knowing that you want to walk away and having the energy to do it when you're so close to what so many people consider a finish line, mm-hmm. um, I think that's going to be an important episode because sometimes we have these gut feelings about knowing it's time to leave, but it seems too hard. Mm-hmm. But if you know, you know. So For people who haven't seen your podcast or read your column in The Globe, how much anxiety do you have? This is just a general question about giving people advice about their love lives because it's such a personal, important thing to people. How much anxiety do you carry on a daily basis when you say, you should do X, Y, Z? You're making me feel like I should like, like lie back therapy style <laughs> on this couch. Um, you know, I think the big thing is I never pretend to have one exact right answer when I only get a little bit of information, right? People tell me what they want to tell me. And I think my goal as, a, in, as an advice columnist and a relationship writer is to help people ask the right questions of themselves. So that takes the pressure off a little bit, I think. But often those people are answering their own questions just through the conversation. And you say oftentimes the people who comment on yes. your Globe columns have great advice, too, and you encourage people to look there as well, not just take what you have to say. Yeah, so on boston.com slash love letters are the actual questions and answers, and then all of the reader comments where we have had people showing up for 10 years, like every year, to give people advice every day. So we have a lot of unofficial advice columns. So you don't feel like, hey, butt out. I mean, this is my job. This is what I do. You you just... I like group therapy. I like help. So everyone's welcome every day. Awesome. Meredith Goldstein, always so great to see you. It's the Love Letters Season 3 podcast. Get it wherever you get podcasts. Yes, so Apple, you know, Spotify, you'll find it right under Love Letters. And then the Love Letters column as well on the Globe. Thank you so much. Always good to see you. Appreciate nice to it. see you too. Creativity combined with innovations in technology. Did you, have you noticed people in really winter bundled coats? up? I, I have to say, I haven't seen winter coats. I yet. have. Last week it was in the 50s but, a few times. Yeah. And maybe in the 40s. And there was a woman I was driving to work. <laughs> You're like, and I just saw, she was right there on Western <laughs> Avenue in Austin. And she had a full winter parka on. Wow. Hat, mm. gloves. I mean, it must have been 52 degrees. Some people are just excited to get their fashion out. Is it a fashion I thing, think, though? Because or they're they, excited to get their stuff. I can understand, like, the vest and the flannel. And that seems, sure. you know, it's a fashion thing. The mm-hmm. boots, the leather boots, the knee highs. Right. The Han Solo look. The Han look. Solo look on young mm. girls. That I understand. The vest and the boots. But this was just not even, it huh. wasn't a fashion thing. Yeah. She just was fully bundled up. Well, and then I noticed a few more people that day, and I thought... Well, when it becomes 15 degrees, then and it's you'll the middle understand. of February, what next thing can you yeah, do to keep yourself you warm? See that. You have to ease yourself into this. True. Thing. So but you're concerned about this woman's physiological I'm concerned. ability I want to find her. I'm going to track her down. Acclimate I'm going to check in with her when it's 15 degrees hit. and go, this is the same outfit that you had on when it was 52 degrees. <laughs> and now your body this is, you're cold. is what I love about Liam so much, is the, the <laughs> depth of thought. Everything feels big He will me. give the most casual <laughs> observation. I mean, he really, I would have looked at that woman and just thought, huh, I would have been really hot in that coat today. Right. 
No, Liam it, takes it. The amount to, of time I waste thinking. About these no, things. no, but it's not a waste. So I was it's in this fantastic part of your yeah, brain. That's true. When I was in Salem the other day, because <laughs> um, I took the kids to Salem, and David Wade has arrived. Hey, oh, hello. hello. What's going on? We're Hi, talking about, just to quickly bring you up to speed, Liam was very disturbed to see a woman the other day in October already dressed like it was the dead Yeah, it was winter. like 52 degrees. She had the full winter coat on and a hat, a winter hat. Yeah, but everybody has different uh, blood types. This is yeah. what I You know, I some know. people are, and I don't even know if this is scientifically true, but some people are warm-blooded, some people right. are cold-blooded, some people have thick <laughs> blood, some people, people are actually thin blood. <laughs> I don't think any of these things are scientifically true, but yeah. you know what right. I mean. He's yeah, yeah, worried yeah. now. She's got nowhere to go. She has nowhere to go. Once the when temperature it's 15, really plunges, you don't know what's in her closet. <laughs> right now, I'm saying she's... this was like a full winter parka, down to the knees. Okay, with the with the hood, with the fur lining, and a winter hat. But maybe she's at only a 500 goose fill. Maybe she's going to go to a 720. <laughs> That's what I don't know. Maybe she she's going coats. to the triple maybe goose. She well, this is what I'm saying. Up pulling out her fashion. This is what I'm saying. I want to check in with her. There was a guy in Salem the other day. It was 60 degrees in Salem, beautiful this uh, past weekend. And he had a scarf on. And I thought to myself, mm-hmm. well, your neck's warm now. But what's going to happen when, you, when it's 15 degrees? Now your neck's cold. Well, now my guess is cold. that a scarf is almost always just an, a, <laughs> yeah. an accessory anyway. Yes. All right, Jonathan it has is. told me to end It's the just an accessory. All right, here's the fun thing. I got thing. the kill from uh, Jonathan there. David arrived, and I don't have to leave yet. So Yeah, because Paula's going a big power move. She, mm. She's going to go interview a Nobel Prize winner. Really? I'm sorry. Yeah. There's a Nobel Prize winner waiting for me in the yeah. lobby. Huge. I'm going to go do I that. I can't believe you have the chance to talk to Steve Burton. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> what oh would he get the Nobel gosh. Prize in? You know what? You um, know. The... There are Nobel Prize winners who do know him. However. Oh, absolutely. Oh, 100%. He probably knows Steve. several of them. What would his Nobel Prize everyone. be in? The economics of just Being Steve the most Burton? interesting man alive. Yes. You're right. You're right. There should it be is, that oh, category. Oh, he's calling me. Hang on. Oh, here he is. Big power move here. She's got a- These are, can I tell you, we're all acting like uh, big shots today. Yeah. Paul is trying to walk out early to do an interview. I'm strolling in late. What's in here? So, all right, good luck with your quiz. Okay, You're about goes. to do a Boston quiz. A Boston quiz? Yeah. Godspeed. So, will you set this up a little bit, Jonathan? What happened here? There's the, someone, uh, the Boston Archive. Was it the Boston Archive? The Boston City Archive found a quiz in their, in their archives, I assume. Um... <laughs> From 1976, and they mm. tweeted it out to say, hey, can anyone answer these questions? Okay. And so that's, that's where it Yeah, the bicentennial from 1976. All right, okay. so this is more like Boston history, which I may not be great at. Uh, well, I'd be better out. at, like, if you asked me, like, something that happened in 1984, <laughs> I'd be able to tell you where it happened and what their last name yeah. was, but this could be tricky. You know, my problem is, if this is sports, yeah. I'm nailing everyone. I'm 100 out of 100 if okay. it's sports. But if it's, like... Historical facts about Boston. I'm with you. I don't All know. right, I'll give you a sports one that's not even on this list. Okay. Who was the starting third baseman for the 1978 Red Sox? 1978 Red Sox? Oh, my gosh. Uh, that's before my of... time. Uh, let me think. Let me think. What happened to 10 out of 10? <laughs> well, I didn't know. I guess I did Who didn't was the know. starting center fielder for the 1986 Red Sox? Greenwell, maybe? Would it have been no. a Greenwell? No. No, he was a rookie in no, 87. No, 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 no. Sorry, sorry. Um, uh, no, I'm thinking of the right fielder. He hit 43 home runs. He hit 43 home runs in one season? Tony Armas. Tony Armas. See, but okay. All right, before you your time. After, after I was born. Okay, how yeah. about uh, who was the, let's see, who had seven RBIs for the Red Sox in the deciding game against the Cleveland Indians in right around 2000, I'll say 1999. So they didn't, that, they didn't win the World Series? No. Seven RBI. 1999. Trot Nixon? Nope. No. Oh, Miller, Miller. 
Uh, Troy O'Leary. Troy O'Leary. Wow, that is a real blast. You better go to this other Okay, yeah, uh, let's go to this one. instead. David definitely uh, bested me there. All right, I haven't seen these yet. Um, the first... Oh, this is true or false, so you get 50, 50% chance here. Uh, the first woman telephone operator in America was hired in Boston. Is that true or false? I would say that that was true since the first phone call ever made was, I believe... Uh, where the financial district is right now. Yeah, Alexander Graham Bell, right? Yeah. So I, I, let me see. That is true. true. Yeah, okay. In 1878, Miss Emma McNutt was hired by the New England Telephone Company to work in Boston. So there you go. I liked that. Just like the Jerky Boys, she had a fake name. <laughs> Emma McNutt. Oh, God rest her soul. Uh, second question. The first chewing gum to be made for sale was manufactured in Boston. The first chewing gum. I'm going to say that that is false. You're I don't right. know why they would have that on there, but I would You're say right. it's false. In Bangor, Maine, John Curtis and his brother manufactured the first chewing gum to be made for sale in 1848. There. Yeah, I feel like that's something we'd be bragging about. State of Dude, Maine. we had the first piece of gum. Kid, have you heard All about right? it? <laughs> Wrigley's, give me a break. <laughs> Their State of Maine pure spruce gum was produced on a Franklin stove. So there you go. That Sounds disgusting. The there you go. <laughs> Boston, uh, question three. Boston is the home of America's first industrial school for, this says, crippled children. I, this, so this is 1976. I don't think we would still be using that word. Uh, Boston is the home of America's first industrial school for disabled say yes. children. <clears throat> true. True. He's three out of three. 1894, the Industrial School for Crippled Children, that was the name of it, uh, was established in two basement rooms of St. Andrew's Parish House on Chambers Street. And I would have guessed true there as well. Just yeah, because, it feels uh, like we're always ahead of the times when it comes yeah. to uh, helping people so with So you know the interesting thing here, I have two different pages, one with the true and the false, one with the answers, one with the questions. So I can go with these two and see if I can get these as well. Uh, the first marathon to be run in America was held in Boston. Yeah, Boston Marathon. The I oldest. think so too. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's true. Yeah. yeah, sponsored by the BAA. That, that we, we have yeah. a little bit of an advantage there. You've run one. Have I have one, yeah. one or two. I've run one. Yeah. You ever going to do it again? Or you think that's? Just I would a like to do it again, thing? but it kind of gets in the way because you know we broadcast the events. Yeah. I enjoy being down at the finish line, interviewing the people. Um, America's first horticultural society was founded in Boston. Is that true or false? Uh, I'm going to guess true. I'm going to guess because. that that's false. It's a weird thing to make up a question about, but I think it's false. It is false. You're yeah. right. Uh, number six, the first newspaper in America was published in Boston. <clears throat> yes, it's true. True. Are you six out of six? I am six out of six. Uh, the Boston Newsletter was first published to cover the week of April 17th to 24th, 1704. It appeared without interruption for 72 years. By the way, their social media account crushes it. <laughs> it was so good. <laughs> uh, number seven, the first horse race in America was held in false. Boston. I'm going to say false because I don't do. We yeah, just have a no big way. history. I would have heard of that. Uh, false. Yeah. Uh, number eight, America's first successful aerial photograph was taken of Boston. False. You got one wrong. Oh, that's true. You were almost yeah. all the way through. On October 13th, 1860, two photographers made eight exposures from the Queen of the Air, a balloon tethered 1,200 feet above Boston. Only one of the pictures turned out well. Can you imagine if they had, none of them turned out well? 
You go, you go to all that, you get the balloon up there. You snap a bunch. Well, let's see what you came back with. <laughs> well, Edmund. Okay, this one's no good. Well, this one stinks. Why didn't you focus? <laughs> the patent is ruined. Um, <laughs> uh, number nine. America's first complete performance of Handel's Messiah was given in Boston. That sounds completely true. Really? Because it, Handel yeah, was then, yeah, Austrian, you're right. Writer. So why would he... Yeah, I'm going to say true anyway. Oh, Sounds it's America's like first complete performance. Yeah, we would, okay. be, we would be up for that. Absolutely. Yeah, you would think, when, 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 when would Handel have written that? Yeah. Was he like 1700s? You're asking So it's got to, I would think, Boston. It's going to be Boston or New York. Let's see. You know what? Ask me about salt and pepper. I'll give you the answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it says, um, well, it says true, and then it's crossed out and says false now. They actually got that, that answer wrong. Oh, the Boston City Archives in this quiz no, got no, one no. wrong. Whoever wrote the quiz got it wrong. Got it wrong. The, the Boston uh, City Archives corrected it and said the actual first performance was in New York City in 1770. Oh, so it was New York City. There they go. really threw that person under the bus. They could have just corrected the question. Instead, they were like, oh, let me just fix some of your answers here. Yeah, so that was false. Um, All right, so I'm, I have one left? Yeah, one less. One left. And I'm seven out of nine, so I need this for you need eight it. out of ten? Yeah, you need yeah, this for passing grid. Definitely. The world's first electric fire alarm system was installed in Boston. Oh, that's totally true. <clears throat> Let's see. Uh, bah, 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 bah. It says true. Okay, yeah. excellent. Boston installed the world's first electric fire alarm system in 1852. And within 24 hours of being put into service, the first alarm was rung from what is now Box 1212 on Causeway Street. Wow. So there you go. Huh. So, so eight, eight out of ten. Years years. Yeah, eight out of ten. I did man. okay. All it's right. A B. When did they correct that answer? Uh, in, in, the, in the tweet, when they tweeted it out, they said one of these is false. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to take a total wrong on that one. I'd say we throw that one out. I think I got yeah, seven it, out of nine. Well, because it did say... Um, or I got eight out of nine. The Handel and Hayden Society. This was the original response. Yeah. Handel and Hayden Society, which is still very, really active, um, premiered Messiah over the course of April 1st, 3rd, and 4th, 1817. The performance took three days because a third of it was sung each day in tandem with a third of Hayden's creation. Yeah, so I think it's true. So I think even if we throw that question out, I end up eight out of nine, which is an 88, which I think is a fairly strong performance. That's a very good performance. Yeah. There you go. I'll take it. Um, should we talk about this Rolling Stone list? Do you Have you seen this list of the 100 best singers? Absolutely. Okay, so what did you... Should, should we just say, should we list the top 20 here? Sure, go so ahead. People can I hear. think so, uh, I know number two was Elvis. Number one was Aretha Franklin, right? Yeah, number one was number two was Ray Charles. Three was Elvis. Okay. So in, this turns out it was in 2010. This list came out, but it yeah. resurfaced over the weekend and went viral. Rolling Stone's list of the 100 best singers. Rolling Stone magazine's list. I'll give you the top 20, and here we go. Number one, Aretha Franklin. Two, Ray Charles. Three, Elvis. Four, Sam Cooke. Five, John Lennon. Six, Marvin Gaye. Seven, Bob Dylan, to be revisited. Eight, Otis Redding. Nine, Stevie Wonder. Ten, James Brown. Eleven, Paul McCartney. Twelve, Little Richard. Thirteen, Roy Orbison. Fourteen, Al Green. Fifteen, Robert Plant. Sixteen, Mick Jagger. Seventeen, Tina Turner. Eighteen, Freddie Mercury. Nineteen, Bob Marley. And twenty is Smokey Robinson. And there's a, there are a hundred here. And it goes all the way up to 100 is Mary J. Blige. All right. So what are your issues? I know you have some <clears throat> issues. The are, these first, like, are these like puffy coat issues or are they worse? <laughs> this is way worse. I mean, worse than puffy coat issues. It's worse than okay. puffy coat issues. I mean, Bob Dylan being in the list 
on a 100 of the best singers is okay. insane to me because he's the, one of the greatest songwriters sure. of all time. Terrible singer. But here's the thing. You, here's my issue with the list. Obviously, it's subjective. Everyone has their own opinions. Everyone hears different voices in a different way. You can't just have a list of what voices are the most perfect technically and which ones are always hitting the right tone and which ones are at the right pitch. If it's that list then most of the people that we even know as commercial artists probably aren't even on it. It's opera singers. They're all people that we don't even know. So a big part of this list has to be something about who you are as an artist, which is why I think a Bob Dylan climbs up on the list. I'm a huge Beatles guy. Seven, though? I mean, should John Lennon be number five? I mean, I'm a huge Beatles guy. John Lennon is five is ridiculous. That's the second point I was going to make. Paul McCartney has a way better voice than John Lennon. I I would give them equal footing. I'd say they both have... John Lennon is known for sort of the more nasally Imagine voice. Imagine all the people. Well, that does, that, but, first of all, that sounds <laughs> literally nothing like John Lennon. I don't. It was like Ross Perot singing Imagine. That was terrible. John, Jonathan, please cut that. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> no hell. Oh, something. No, it's heaven above us. No, yeah. Above us only sky. Wow. And then, but, but he's, his voice is just not that great. Are you a good singer? I think no. you're a good singer. Should we have a top 10 list of the... Uh, no, Here's John. John Lennon's a fantastic singer, so let me make sure that not I'm not 10. in with... Oh, this he's is not... karaoke. This is you singing Oh, this it. is it? Oh, I don't know the words. Okay. <laughs> Imagine there's no heaven. Holy moly. <laughs> Jeepers. It's easy if you try. Wow. <laughs> oh, man, this hurts. I'm sweating. No hell below us. This is literally the worst impression I've ever heard. <laughs> Above us, only sky. <laughs> I can't do it. I was in the car. I thought to myself, I think I can do an okay John Lennon. And Liam, now I admit that it's not very Allie, our social media expert. Her face is turning red listening to this. You Anyway, should I do Bob Dylan now? Yeah. Uh, the times they are a changing. Uh, that kind of sounds the same as your Lennon. <laughs> ooh, Bob Dylan needs but, to be with moves. Boo, like, it, ooh. A hurricane. That's better. Everybody does the hurricane. Yeah, he did, everything comes ooh, in. It's good. So, <laughs> the times they are a changing. Something but like, like blowing in the wind, he doesn't quite sing like that. He's a little bit. But it, the fact that he's seven, I think uh, most people could agree he's not number seven. Can you do it one more time for me? <laughs> Nothing <laughs> to kill or die for. See, this isn't my John Lennon. That's just this you. This is David Wade. That's just David Wade. Yeah, I am a horrible singer. To no. <laughs> no. Imagine all the people. You know where I am? There you go. I go real high. Yeah, you have to go falsetto. You like I going falsetto. I always falsetto, yeah. Living in peace. You, you may say I'm a dreamer. <laughs> You'll edit all this I'm out, obviously. I'm not the only one. <laughs> I mean, I'm just trying to do nasal. Someday you'll join us. <laughs> we got to harmonize. Ready? And the world will be as one. <laughs> All right. Anyway, McCartney, though. McCartney's just better. Anyway, you know my, my best karaoke... You know what my number one karaoke song is? Yeah. It's 
Always Axl Rose. Always Guns N' Roses. Axl Rose? Always. That's, that's tough to do. Because that's falsetto for most of the song. Which is the only thing I know how to do. Yeah. This is the part where we say, uh, please go and subscribe and write a review. You can review my John Lennon impression uh, that will go down in infamy. I'm sure I honestly thought in my head that my impression was better. And the minute I saw your reaction, I thought, boy, it's not. Wait, could I ask you a question? If you were like at a party and somebody, you know, like in a movie where they yell, quick, is there someone in here, a doctor? If, if quick, you were at a party and somebody yelled, quick, we need somebody who could do a John Lennon impression. <laughs> would you, would you raise your hand? I would. Holy. I would have, not now I wouldn't. That's See, I would I say would. if I were at that party, I'd be like, he didn't say Ross Perot. He said John Lennon. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd spend the next 10 uh, minutes Ross Perot. trying to do a whole bit about what you just did. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's wrap it up. Yeah, we're available everywhere. You listen to podcasts, uh, smash on the subscribe button and, and give us five stars as well. And, and, and you could uh, give us a review. Let us know what you think about the show, what you like, what you don't like, and uh, share it as well. Let your friends know about us. Our Twitter handle is at StudioBZPod. I am at Liam WBZ. I am at David Wade. And as always, we'll, we'll be seeing you. <laughs> you missed it. Oh, oh, now this is the jam. This is November rain. Who, oh. who has eight minutes to sit around and listen to me? <laughs> <laughs> but nothing lasts forever, and we both know hearts can change. I'm not ready yet. No, you. that was no. pretty good. No, I need to. It's got to be higher. This is still like the part where he's kind of singing nice. And it's hard to hold a candle in the cold November rain. Still not there. This is still not the part where I can sing. Can you do Sweet Child of Mine? I can do Sweet Child of Mine. (laughs) 